Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Wisdom Wednesdays, a little midweek dose of thoughts and reflections. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, author and entrepreneur, passionate about stretching minds and perspectives to release you from the past and open your mind up to the unlimited possibilities that life offers each and every one of us if we care to look. If you like the Not Perfect podcast, please share, rate and comment as that really helps me grow this show to bring you even more inspiring guests weekly. Matt Rudd is my guest on today's podcast and I am so thrilled to have him because after reading his book, Man Down, I've been left pondering lots of thoughts ever since. The book combines research with Matt's own personal exploration of why mental health in men is so troubled and what are possible solutions. Matt is a senior writer at the Sunday Times. He's an award-winning columnist. Man Trouble is his column, and it's in the Sunday Times magazine. And for those of you who are outside of England and listen to this podcast, let me just tell you, it's the biggest magazine in England. It's a huge column to have. He has written three novels and two nonfiction books, including Man Down. And the reason why this topic I think is so important to me, mental health in men, is because I grew up understanding that men struggle with mental health just as much as women and the next person. As my father went through many periods of chronic anxiety, depression, and even now it can be a daily challenge to manage. I have two brothers and I now have a male partner, all of which who struggle with different things. And so this book is not just very well written, it's funny but deeply necessary for everybody to read. Matt is on a mission to create emotional equality, and I couldn't be more supportive. And he's passionate about creating a culture that allows all humans to process their emotions, regardless of what they look like or identify as. What's a favorite quote you return to often and why? The simple one is, and it's the sort of thing that pops up on you know, those sort of Instagram self-help flashes. So it's a bit sickening, but it's simple. It's the purpose of life is to be happy. There's no advice there. It's not a clever quote, but it's something that I completely forgot in my midlife doldrums. It was all about success rather than happiness. And if I can keep that little mantra in my head, everything will be okay. Well, I'm going to wait um, to to share my question specifically about that. Before I do, what's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently? So my son is 15, almost 16. He had his GCSE drama practical last week. And I got to a point where performing, speaking in public, doing anything in front of people became so angst-ridden that I didn't enjoy it at all. And he somehow has not inherited this fear of failure in public from me. And he was completely fearless and he really went for it and it was brilliant. And the lesson was be more like 
a fearless child. <laughs> and how do you understand the soul? I think, as you'll know from the book, this this is all quite new to me. I haven't written a self-help guide because when I started doing all this research, I wasn't at the point where I could even accept it. So I would say I don't understand it yet, but I'm much further on than I was three years ago. And I'll give you an answer in another three years when I've got it all worked out. How's that? Perfect. I'll hold you to it. We'll put a date in the diary for the second (laughs) podcast. So I want to dive into your book and I want to begin by reading a, a passage that you have on page two. And you write, I fear that I am bad, or at least an absent parent. I fear that I'm a bad husband, too caught up in the parenting. I don't do enough of all the work I do too much of to give enough thought to the most important relationship in my life. I fear that I'm a negligent son and brother, too caught up in the immediate family I also neglect. And then you move on to say, I suspect that I'm an unsuccessful writer, no longer the next big thing, and certainly not the current big thing. So it was just so beautifully human. And I felt like that was the tone throughout the book is just the humanness that you brought to it. So why did you write Man Down? And what was it like to write a book that was so deeply human? It was a bit of an accident that came from desperation, really. I kind of reached a point where I felt as if I'd passed all these hurdles. I'd passed my exams at school gone to university, did that, found myself at the bottom of the career ladder, climbed up that, got, you know, the wife and the kids, did everything that society expects of you. Then I just got to this point where I felt like I had no freedom, no time, and so many different pressures. And it starts happening in the middle of the night. I'd wake up and I'd catastrophize. I'd have these circular thoughts. What if this happens? What if that happens? How will I feed the kids if that happens? And it spiraled. So what I did is when I went to the pub with friends who to me looked like they were holding it all together, I was, how are they managing it? And I forced my poor friends to explain. And what actually emerged was that they were all kind of waking up in the middle of the night as well. So then I started interviewing other men who were successful for an article that built into a piece in the Sunday Times with this quite irritating headline, why are successful men unhappy? And Mm. because men are like living in a society which, you know, was set up by men for men, we're doing all right. So what on earth am I complaining about? What are why are all these men struggling? And Thousands of men got in touch and said they were in the same boat and thousands of their partners Mm. said, you're describing my husband, boyfriend. What helped for me was realizing I wasn't the only one and that we're all in the same boat. And so, of course, I then decided to spend two years wanging on about it in a book. It's so brilliant. And the reason why I like it so much is because you reassure people it's actually no one's fault. Often it's the culture that we're swimming in that is so oppressive. And so in the chapter, Man and Money, you open with a quote by William James, who's one of my favorite thinkers ever, like grandfather of psychology. And he writes, success is our national disease. 
And I just agree because we do live in a very toxic society that tells us that everybody needs more, nobody's enough as they are, and then as a consequence, we wonder why self-esteem is in the gutter. Why did you include this chapter in particular about this relationship between men and money and if you could share where it's gone wrong? I don't think I've quite got the answer to say that, you know, success doesn't equal happiness, success doesn't bring happiness. But in that chapter, there's a very harrowing story. I spoke to the wife of a man in his 30s who'd who'd taken his own life. He was doing really well. He, you know, he was quite obsessive about paying the mortgage, had a good job, had a happy relationship. But in his mind, he wasn't doing as well as he should have done. And things unraveled for him. And it's so distressing. And that is, unfortunately, you know, men in their in their 40s, there is a, a spike in depression and suicide. And then luckily, it starts to go down again. And finally, when you're 60, and too old to care, it seems mad that we have to wait until we're 60 to be happy, when, you know, it would be better to do it a lot earlier. I mean, I feel really deeply passionate about this point that you weave through your book and this idea of, you know, what happens when plans don't unfold as you wanted them to. And this idea of like subjectively not feeling like you've arrived in life and you thought that you would have done by a certain age. Why do you think that we have become so conditioned to have these fixed plans and go back to William James, who was the first one to create that wonderful equation, like happiness equals, you know, the difference between expectations and reality. How do we grapple with that gap? I think there's two answers here. There's there's the big stuff, which is feels kind of out of our own control. And then there's the small stuff. So the big stuff, you know, we need complete change in society, because the first time a kid's given a gold star at primary school, for being a good boy or a good girl, You know, you're being conditioned not to enjoy life, but to behave. And all these exams that we subject kids to, I left university thinking I was brilliant. I was going to be a gift to a lucky employer and then Mm. found myself sending off a billion CVs and struggling for most of my 20s to get a foothold in my chosen career. So there's all of that. And and it goes on, and then the next thing, and as I said, then you, you know, if you're being extremely conformist, marriage and kids, there's always a thing that's two or three years ahead. You're being told by everyone around you is the thing you have to do next. So there isn't really a, an opportunity until you hit your 40s to kind of pause and think, what am I going to do next? Is all the stuff that I've just done things that I wanted to do? And by then, I think it's too late. The problem is, certainly with the the many men I've spoken to, specifically in their sort of midlife, they don't even want to have this conversation. There was one guy who, when I was sort of prodding him to explain how he was feeling, he was just shutting the conversation down because he said, if I start thinking about this, it'll all fall down. That's how precarious it feels, and I've tried to do this with my three sons, is to, you know, so I would never say to them, you've got to work hard because you've got your GCSEs coming up. Things are very competitive. Finding ways to to disrupt that and find a a more relaxed way. And, And finally, 
just to put pauses in because every time you're making a decision, if you're just making it quickly, then that's you're making the decision that society and culture has already made for you. I mean, I just want to put a moment just to really center upon that point of the power of the pause, because otherwise society and culture is making that decision for you. I just think that is so simple and yet such golden advice because when you like truly examine how conditioned we are without even realizing on such a subconscious level we do have freedom if we allow ourselves to have freedom away from the status quo so anyway I'm going to stop talking I'm going to hand it over to you and please can you share what your thoughts are about the self-help world and why this really isn't a self-help book yeah so it's really dangerous to to make sort of sweeping gender generalizations but men find it very very difficult to open up and talk about their feelings it's a huge cliche but it's true and i think the gurus make some of them make it sound as if it's really quite straightforward if you do this this and this then you'll have this and that equation doesn't work if you're not even able to pause and reflect for yourself. I was totally unable to consume or take on any advice from self-help books because I just wasn't, I wasn't even at that stage. And the only other thing is that all the self-help gurus that kind of give you their life story, it's always, I was, you know, I was a marketing consultant and I wasn't happy and I went to Bali and I changed my life and everything's great now I'm a self-help guru and we can't all be self-help gurus can we that doesn't I'm being slightly flippant but it is frustrating they make it sound easy and the reality is that I feel or I felt I didn't have the wiggle room to try these sort of outlandish experiments you know of turning your life upside down in order to achieve what they were trying to get us to achieve. So I dispensed with all of that. Well, you know, I think this is why I really respected your book, because it's really nice to read mental health books not written by, as you say, self-proclaimed gurus or self-proclaimed people whose job is to teach people about self-help. I think the other thing is that a lot of the stories that I kind of turned to for help, it began with something quite spectacular happening in, you know, a proper full-blown midlife crisis, for example. And then there's a subtler thing that's going on with many more people who avoid having the full-on crisis after which you are kind of forced to confront what's going on. For me and for you know, 99% of the men I spoke to, it's much more a case of must keep going. As I said before, keep the plates spinning. Sounds like you're the same. You know, we just keep on going and try to get to, you know, what in the old days would have been the carriage clock or the gold watch on retirement. That is what most people do. They have a choice to do something kind of dramatic and reappraise and move or change careers or change something massive or just keep going and it's so much easier to keep going 
So you, in the, in the book, you share a study that psychologists found that the bronze winners in the Olympics oh. looked happier than the gold winners. And I thought, God, that's a really key message, actually. We don't need to be number one. And when we don't need to be number one, suddenly we're an awful lot happier because actually we realize it doesn't, number one doesn't mean we're going to be any, any happier. Probably as you are listeners right now, you are winning more than you possibly could ever realize. Yeah, unfortunately, Poppy, it's even worse than that. So this was a survey that some naughty psychologists did. I think it was the Barcelona Olympics. They looked at photographs of all the medal winners on the podiums through the whole Olympics. And they found that the the gold medalists had big smiles. The bronze medalists had... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Bigger smiles, (laughs) and the silver medalists had rictus grins they were miserable (laughs) and they concluded and this is such a metaphor for everything we've been talking about they concluded that obviously you're happy if you've won you're happy if you got onto the podium narrowly avoiding being fourth but if you're silver all you're thinking of you're not thinking great i beat the bronze guy and i'm the second best person at this particular thing in the entire world you're thinking I've just missed out. You need to bottle the bronze energy rather than the silver energy. The silver energy is so understandable. I mean, I've, I've on on the rare occasions when I've been nominated for something and have to go to an awards thing and then watch one of my competitors go up and collect. It's been. I would much rather have not been nominated at all. But that's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah. And I think actually just becoming conscious, actually understanding that these are such normal human emotions. Suddenly, I think it brings a bit of humor to it. And actually, you can kind of laugh at the fact that, oh, you're kind of having a bit of a silver moment. (laughs) I I personally find that gives me great joy in laughing and actively sharing all the failures in my life because it's far more fun to laugh at them than to try to like hide them under the carpet. That is brilliant because I've spoken to some quite extreme people who are, who are kind of black belts in the sort of mode of life that I've been attempting more recently. And they, they deliberately don't care about success. So they win the gold medal 
and they're more interested in what they're having for dinner that <laughs> night. Now they're not they're definitely not going to be winning gold medals with that mentality. They are successful, but more importantly, they're they're really happy. You know, sports is a good metaphor for all of this. Every single time you read a sports memoir of some person who's, you know, won this and that, the winning is always followed by crippling depression and misery. You know, Johnny Wilkinson is a really good example. Wins the Rugby World Cup, which he's has been his dream since he was seven. And that's followed by, you know, a really serious bout of depression. And so what's the answer there? It's probably not to never play rugby. And he would probably wouldn't have won the World Cup if he didn't care so much about it. But I think modelling these other people I'm talking about who don't care is a much better way to go. And since I've been doing that, I really try not to worry about, you know, how well I'm doing and this and that. It certainly hasn't affected my life negatively. That's as far as I can say. When I come back to do podcast two in three years' time, we'll see if I've if it's all gone to pot. I'd love to talk about something also you explore, this highly competitive culture that we have and this idea that the grass is greener, other people are happier, and actually, again, not always the case. How do you manage and how do you take yourself out of the rat race that the world seems to want to put us in? I mean, the first thing is to say is that I started researching this book and wrote quite a lot of it before the pandemic. So a lot of that was all about the rat race, keeping up with the Joneses. I never see my kids, but it's, you know, I've got to have this and that stuff. And then suddenly, and quite alarmingly, everything I was kind of working my way towards in the book, you know, better work-life balance, more focus on the things that are important. Suddenly that happens. We're all stuck at home. I'm seeing my kids all the time. And, you know, it's obviously not quite the circumstances you'd want it in. And the pandemic was such an extreme experience, obviously. For a lot of the people I spoke to, it did kind of uncouple them from the rat race and they are reluctant. Obviously, we want to get back to, you know, full freedom and we're, you know, we're heading very quickly in the right direction. But we don't want to go back to how things were, this sort of hybrid that we're, we kind of ended up in at the sort of second half of the pandemic seems to be the thing to hang on to. But even though there is desire there for us to kind of reshuffle and keep the gifts of the pandemic, how on earth do we do that? Because suddenly, you know, the old age, competitive, capitalistic monster rears his head. You're promised a promotion. You spend an extra day at work because actually that will help you get there because promotion then means maybe a promotion, you know, in your salary. That may means you could live in a house that you want to live in. Like it becomes this circle, then we then become trapped in again. So what are your thoughts for keeping this balance? I think it's, uh, this is the bit where I get, nervous because you just can't tell young people in particular don't worry about the promotion and a you know the nice house is in no way going to make up for you being miserable even if everything goes well look at all the men that I've spoken to in this book who are far more successful than I am and they're all miserable I've said all of what I can't say 
But I think a really good example is the what's happening with parenting leave at the moment, because I had a week uh, paternity leave for each of my sons, and it meant that I didn't support my wife. You know, I was there for the week, and then I was back, you know, the Monday after colleagues so ask, everything okay? I say yes, and that's it family is forgotten about in the workplace. But now what's happening, and in the book, I spent time with this incredibly annoying insurance company where they'd given equal parenting leave throughout the company. And all these, you know, all the men and women I spoke to were talking about the absolutely perfect first six months they had. You know, the fathers got to know the kids and the woman was supported and not just dumped and left to do it all herself you know there was and since that conversation just a couple of years ago the number of companies now realizing that it's completely archaic to have a situation where you know men get a a week off it's archaic and it is patriarchal they're all changing that and we're you know we're moving to a, a more you know in sweden it's been like that for years I would be amazed if in 10 or 15 years, that's just not standard policy. It's a kind of anti-promotion, anti-elbowing thing. And the, and the thing about that company that did that policy is that the employer was very happy as well because productivity had gone up because mm. everyone was happier. It's interesting because, as you say, it almost feels completely contradictory drivers of happiness to what we are conditioned and really the conversation around it just needs to be louder and people for, to be more aware of actually the research and research like that to find that actually happier employees aren't as a result of a promotion, but actually yeah. more meaningful time off. You know, across Europe, the countries are fiddling with, you know, the sort of right to switch off rules and talking about four-day weeks. Clearly, the presenteeism that is such a part of Mm. British work culture, Mm. this idea that, you know, as you said it in the question, um, if I stay late, I'm more likely to get a promotion. It's not true that the longer you work, the better you are. It probably is still true that there there are employers that think, oh, well done, he's here until 10. Isn't he great? He hasn't seen his kids tonight. Mm. But they can't be good managers. Again, I think this is something that the younger generation are going to have to balance. They clearly have more of a sense of wanting work-life balance and wanting a kind of hybrid work-from-home, work-from-office thing. I speak to a lot of young people who are just not going to be in an office for five days a week. Why would they do that? Because the technology allows us to have a balance. Hopefully, a lot of those things will just happen organically because em- employers will work out that it's not the person working 60 hours a week who is the one to get the promotion maybe it's the one who's clever enough to mm. work 30 but really really well i mean really really wise words and i think there's an essence in this book that encourages people to question how they're conforming and perhaps the most anti-conformists are often happier What advice would you have to people who are kind of reflecting upon their life now 
in just becoming aware of in what ways they're conforming and 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 I guess this kind of links to if you are an anti-conformer maybe perhaps you're better at just not caring what people think of you because you know conforming is linked to us being more acceptable or more, more likable or whatever so what are your thoughts on that and any tips to be able to start walking down very much your own road regardless of what people think how does one do that I think, and this is the whole problem, I don't think it's realistic to expect people immediately to step out of the system. I mean, I can't do it. I haven't done it. Because then you're getting into the realms of the the, the guru telling you to, to completely <laughs> change your life. And I, I think to answer that, I'll briefly tell you about the happiest person I met in all my travels. And that will kind of illustrate that the answer to the question is that you cannot conform or however you want to put it while still carrying on and ticking all the boxes and doing everything society expects of you so and this is a guy who he was mid-20s he was setting up a business as a burglar alarm installation guy he had a steady girlfriend nice house with a mortgage that he was just starting to pay off so he's he's at a kind of point in his life where he's settling in for the long haul until the carriage clock but down in Portsmouth where he is the people who are having their wanting burglar alarms installed tended to be older so he was spending every day having a cup of tea with old people and the conversation invariably went how old are you? He'd say 27. And then they would become morose and say, oh, I wish I'd, oh, if I was your age, I'd do everything different, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So this kind of got to him and he decided he was going to chuck it all in, finish with the girlfriend, got rid of the house, got in a caravan and drove up to Loch Ness because as a child, he'd had his happiest holidays there. And he, he, Arrived in the caravan, this was 28 years ago, and he's still there in his caravan. And I spoke to him, and he's been interviewed by journalists before, and he's always the kind of Nessie hunter, the wacky guy who's never spotted the the monster, but he's still watching. And I got a completely different... He he was just an amazing person to talk to, because he was really living that whole, you know, the monkish live every moment, live in the presence thing. But he wasn't preaching it. It really was quite hard to get it out of him. I was like, why, what is it? Why have you chosen this life? And he, instead of answering it directly, he described how a weather front had come over that morning and the light had changed and he saw the lock that he's been staring at for 28 years. In a, there's a shaft of light, he felt it, it went right through him and he was just in that moment and he felt like it was forever, but it was only a moment. And I've done a lot of meditation classes and I struggle with them. And he just in that moment, he was literally describing the kind of the most ancient meditative experience any of us could hope to imagine. Now, we can't all go and live by Loch Ness in a caravan, right? It would wreck it. But out of all the people I spoke to, that moment being described by him has stuck in my mind. 
we can all have those moments, not of Loch Ness, but anything, anything, all the little things that we just trample over or ignore because we're, you know, worried about our five-year plan or worried about passing exams or whatever it is. If you just can slow down, even for a couple of minutes a day, that's not sort of anti-conformist at all, but it's definitely a different way of thinking about things that has made a really big difference for me. Thank you so much for such a lovely point to uh, finish the interview on and uh, something that I think we can all take away. Matt, how can people find you? And I imagine your book is everywhere, but if you could share any details on that, that would be great. I'm on Twitter if anyone has any specific questions in in the unlikely event they find the book and and have questions but otherwise you can find me in that magazine you were so kind about at the at the start of this brilliant well we'll put links to that in the show notes and um and and I look forward to speaking to you in three years time when you have your definition (laughs) of complete and total inner peace Yeah, I'll have sorted it all out by then. But thank you very much. Uh, Three years ago, I wouldn't have even been able to talk to a friend in a pub about the the things we've talked about. But for the men listening to this, all the people who live with men, get them to start talking and not just joking about it. Serious conversation is the thing that has helped me most. Thank you for listening. It would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating, subscribing and sharing this podcast. I also would love to hear from you. So please find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram, DM me and I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss. Download Happy Not Perfect, my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes. It's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs. Sending lots of love and energy. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.